is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Friday morning from 10 to 11 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Live theatre has been such a rare creature for the past 18 months that I am almost dizzy with the excitement of chatting to three different stalwarts of Columbia's theatre community, each of whom has a production opening in the next 10 days. Plays during the pandemic era are apparently like buses, they arrive in threes. From some of Shakespeare's greatest hits to a musical about invading aliens to a sombre and powerful play about a Holocaust survivor and the aftermath of survivors' loss and guilt. Maybe the theme that tenuously links them is love and loss because even invading aliens, it transpires, have time for love. Plus, as a theatre palette cleanser, we have a chat about this year's celebration of the arts event and this year's commemorative poster, designed by painter Ken Nichols. It's a roller coaster ride, so if you are all buckled in, let's start with the Bard. There is a pretty lake on East A.W. Mans Road, just south of Columbia, upon which, and possibly in which, Greenhouse Theatre Project's next production will be performed. Titled Lake Shakes, it features performances by five actors, including Greenhouse Theatre Project's founder, Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri, of scenes from some of Shakespeare's biggest hits, all set against a watery backdrop. As always with Greenhouse Productions, there is magic in the unexpected, and here to give away as little as possible, as she is wont to do, is Elizabeth Brunt palmieri and fellow Lake Shakes actor Richard Harris. Good morrow, Elizabeth and Richard. <laughs> good morning. Hello, good morning. <laughs> so I'm having visions of synchronised Shakespeare swimming. Should I be setting my expectations a little differently, Elizabeth? Oh, man, if only we were that choreographed. Um <laughs> After watching the Olympics, I w- my daughter was completely enthralled with the synchronized swimming. And that's just not what you're going to see. It won't be as graceful, but, <laughs> but it'll be something. Richard, has any other director asked you to act in your swimming gear? Well, yes. And, you know, oh. I have so many cannonballs to show. I am, <laughs> I, 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 the problem is my director is going to be like, Richard, would you please get out of the water? We need to do this scene. <laughs> No. (laughs) Particularly in August in Missouri. Are there any other previous acting experiences in your career that have been similarly unorthodox, shall we say? Absolutely not for me, if if you were talking to me. Absolutely not. This is is going to be so exciting that... um, I mean, this vision this this lady has of putting this thing on and on... On water is just like, it's, it's completely stimulating. And I mean, looking forward to it. Well, I know the sea was important symbolically to Shakespeare. And obviously, we don't have any sea to hand here in central Missouri, hence the lake. So, Elizabeth, talk me through your vision and thought processes for putting this production together. Yeah, well, it, it actually originated uh, years ago. This property belongs to Abby Aruz and Jack Chase, and they are dear friends. Abby's also on the Greenhouse board, and they have created the most magical spot in Min, Missouri. It's, it's actually what I think the most beautiful place in Missouri. 
And it's just outside of Colombia. You know, people don't know it's there because it's private property. But they have wanted me to do something out there for years. And we've talked about it and what that would look like. And I knew always it was going to involve the lake because the lake is a major part of the property. And it's so beautiful. It's so beautifully framed in. And you really feel like you are transported to a completely different place. You feel like you're on an island when you're there. And so I knew whatever I did there had to be something involving magic. <laughs> and and basically, you know, it, it took COVID, I guess, to push me in the direction of actually following through and, and creating a project uh, that would suit this location. And especially with the summer, things kind of let up a little bit, but then things are getting a little heavy again. And it's just uh, relieving to know that we're, we're performing this piece outdoors. And so people don't have to be on guard as much as they would be if we were performing indoors. So, so the location itself has, has always been the instigator in this. And then the Shakespeare came along. Um, I mean, everyone, not everyone loves Shakespeare. Okay. (laughs) But when we do Shakespeare, you know, Diana, we, we have a different approach. Uh, we try to make it accessible to today's audience. So oftentimes that means shaving it down, tightening it up and putting it in a time or a space or a place that people can relate to. And even if they can't relate to the time, the place, the space, they relate to the characters, they empathize with the characters. And so a couple months ago, I did a little shout out on our social media, just asking our followers, uh, what are your favorite scenes from Shakespeare? I was just curious. I kind of already knew what I was going to get for the answers. And (laughs) for the most part, that's true. But um, there was a couple wild cards in there. And so um, the the main thing for me was how does the, the sea or the water have symbolism within the piece itself, within that scene? And so that was the main tie for me. So tell us a little bit about some of the scenes you have chosen or the public have chosen for Lake Shakes. Right. Okay. Well, um, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to be super secretive about it this time, (laughs) but, um, I'll ask you, what do you think the most famous scene from Shakespeare is? Oh, Romeo and Juliet. Exactly. The balcony scene, right? right? Okay. So we are doing the balcony scene, but we are not doing it on a balcony. We're actually doing it on a kayak. Okay. <laughs> so I'll just leave it at that. But, <laughs> but yeah, so, so we definitely have some scenes that people, I mean, the scenes that we are performing from are plays that people really know. So extracting a scene isn't going to really throw them off. I feel like people won't be lost because they're seeing a scene that's just been plucked from a show that they have no idea what's going on. They will know what's happening. And everything is stitched together beautifully by these interludes performed by Ruth Acuff, who is playing harp. So the scenes you have chosen are not necessarily in their original form set in water or have a relevance to water? Because I mean, if I'm thinking about the balcony scene, what is the water theme within that? Well, the water theme for me personally is uh, it's a highly sexually charged scene. And I think putting the actors in the water, feeling the sensation of, of being, you know, they, they will, you know, spoiler, they will tip the boat and land into the water at one point. And so they will be 
in this bowl of water, you know what I mean? Performing this piece with each other. And I think it's sensual in that sense, the water acts as a protection device for them because there is a sense of urgency with that piece. You know, the nurse is, is calling for Juliet and they are, um, definitely not supposed to be seeing one another. So, so in, in that sense, the water becomes another character in the piece, really. And it's something for them to react to and respond to. And it's, it's actually really fun in that piece. Even though that's a heavier scene that we're doing, the water makes a little bit more playful, for sure. What are some of the lighter scenes at the lighter end, then? Well, we have much ado about nothing. And... Again, I'm just like, I'm blowing all my secrets now, but (laughs) (laughs) the men arrive back from the wars on a boat, on a motorboat. (laughs) And uh, there's a lot of, if, if you kind of sift through what Shakespeare has been writing, I mean, the sea pops up all the time, the water, these references to the sea, the vastness, the fear of the sea, but also the respect of the water, you know what I mean? The water takes and the water gives. There's this constant metaphor of being in awe of of the water because it is something that can uh, both take and give. And uh, I think the the piece that symbolizes that the most for me is Twelfth Night. And so we are doing a couple scenes from Twelfth Night as well. So Richard, my sources tell me that you once took an acting class with Denzel Washington. <laughs> well, actually, you I know was something? hoping that she'd bring this up. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, actually, what it was was a was a workshop, and uh, it was a it was a two day workshop, and it included Denzel himself and Chadwick Boseman mm. and Denzel's son. And uh, what he did was he broke down for these kids that I was actually in charge of, which was Boys and Girls Club. He broke down to these kids, the classical theater and the training of. And I had the opportunity being on site to be involved in that and actually lab with the guys. In other words, I got an opportunity to get on the stage and go through some of the training and the drills of it. And so that is my one degree to Denzel Washington as far as theater is concerned. (laughs) So I'm not sure if it has relevance to this production, but did you take away any acting gems that have served you well in Greenhouse Theatre Projects, Lake Shakes? Absolutely. Because when I first came on board, of course. The only thing I knew of Shakespeare was, of course, the histories and the tragedies. I didn't know very much about the comedies. And uh, iambic pentameter is what I knew, and I knew what a sonnet was, and I knew what a soliloquy was. But other things, and technically how to get to the place to do a classical piece like anything Shakespeare is about, I have little, I mean, just really on the edge information and knowledge of. And so this wonderful woman they call Liz (laughs) actually broke it down to a layman exactly what was going on. Like from the top, she taught me breathing that I had just, I mean, it just, I've heard about it (laughs) and I knew that it existed, but this woman actually put physically on me the way to breathe trying to do these classical pieces justice. And so that was the very first thing. And other than that, she taught me how to understand or to break down exactly what I'm trying to uh, relate to the audience, what I'm trying to act or to react to. 
as far as Shakespeare is concerned. So it was a lot. It's a, I mean, we could go on for 15 minutes to things that I've learned in the last three days doing this. So uh, I am so thankful. I know this is tantamount to asking you a theatrically heretical question, but Richard, do you like Shakespeare? Oh, I just love Shakespeare. It has intimidated me, so I have been a fan most of the time. I mean, all of the time, actually. I've been a fan of the big pieces like Hamlet and Othello and Macbeth, and but I didn't know very much about the comedies. And now that I've been turned on since I've been in Columbia, I've been turned on to these comedies. And I'm like, oh, I've missed out on what Shakespeare was really about, you know, these comedies and most of the lines, most of the phrasing and most of the things that I know outside of Shakespeare that's really uh, popular comes from these comedies. So, uh, yeah, I am excited and loving this Shakespeare thing. Elizabeth, talk to me about the acoustics of this outdoor setup. We, the audience, are all on the shore, I hope, being dry. The actors are out on the water, boldly enunciating Shakespearean verse. How are you getting all that sound and all that environment into my ears? Yeah, so we have several play spaces. We, um, the actors will be on the beach a little bit. We'll be in the shallow end of the water, so right in front of the audience. We'll be out on a dock. Richard gets to be on a floating dock for <laughs> a couple scenes. Yeah, we're going to be kind of all over the map. But that's a great question because the cool thing about the acoustics out there, are we have this forest of trees that frame the entire lake. It's a small lake. It's not like a, a vast, you know, it doesn't take up a, a vast amount of space. But those trees kind of frame it in and protect all the sound. And so if you're on the other side of the lake and you yell across, you can hear clearly what that person says, even just yelling from all the way across the lake. And so I'm not concerned as much about the sound quality per se, but I am working with the actors quite a bit on projection. It's kind of like any time you do outdoor theater. In the past, Greenhouse has done outdoor theater in urban spaces. We did Romeo and Juliet years ago in the North Village Arts District. And I remember fire trucks would go by or, there, or you just have the sound of traffic like in the street right behind us. And that was up to the actors to, uh, to work through that and over that and um, not necessarily combat it. I mean, I know that we're going to have the beautiful, delightful sounds of Missouri August with all the frogs croaking and uh, cicadas and stuff like that. But that's really just going to be our soundscape and our backdrop. And Ruth will get to work with that too. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely to have Ruth's music out there. She's a fantastic harpist and rock singer, in fact. Yes, yeah, she is. She's a rock, rock singer. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have no idea, Richard. You have no oh idea. My goodness. That means the cast party is going to be cracking. It's going to be lit. I just, I just aged myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> Elizabeth, before we close, is there anything else you want people to know about this production? Oh, it's family friendly. And uh, I really want people to come and just enjoy. They, they need to come early, first of all, so they can enjoy the, the setting and just really take a nice, safe inhale and exhale and uh, enjoy where they're at and, and being with each other and being able to experience live theater again, because I think that that was something for me, of course, that COVID um, really pronounced to me how much I missed it and how important it is to have a living, breathing audience in front of me. 
Well, Lake Shakes, the upcoming production being delivered by Greenhouse Theatre Project, will run from Thursday the 26th to Sunday the 29th of August at Pretty Lake, just south of Columbia. You can find directions, instructions and tickets at greenhousetp.org. And Elizabeth Brown-Pamieri and Richard Harris, thank you so much for luring us to the water's edge. Thank you, Diana. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Diana. The name Golgotha is the Greek name for Calvary, the site of Christ's crucifixion. But for the Sephardic Jews, those whose ancestry hails from Spain and North Africa, the name Golgotha, in their language of Ladino or Judeo-Spanish, means suffering. And Golgotha is also the title of a monodrama, a one-man play, originally written in Hebrew by Israeli playwright Shmuel Raphael, and then adapted and translated into English by Haim Edisis and Howard Ripp. The play centres on Albert Salvado, a Holocaust survivor from Thessalonica, who was sent to Auschwitz with his wife and daughters in the winter of 1943. Only Albert survived. The play has arrived in Columbia thanks to the University of Missouri's Professor of Playwriting, David Crespi, who met the playwright during a conference at Bar Ilan University in Tel Aviv back in 2018. And this weekend, it will be performed at Talking Horse Productions by my guest this morning, Aaron Krowitz. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, Diana. So this is definitely not a play that you will leave feeling uplifted by. It is described as harrowing and emotionally draining, but it is a play that shines a light on a particular group of Jewish people, the Sephardic Jews, and on the role the Nazis forced upon many of the captured Jews from the Greek city of Thessalonica, that of Sonder Commandos. But before we get into the play itself, can you give us a little potted history of the Sephardic Jews and their links with Thessalonica? Yes. When the Jews were expelled from Israel, or what is now Israel many years ago, it created the diaspora. One group went to Europe, one group went to Spain, and another group went to uh, North Africa. The Jews in Spain flourished for many, many years. They had prominent roles and positions but they were expelled in 1492 by Queen Isabella. And at that time, it created another diaspora, and some of them went to Thessalonica in Greece and began a long and very successful life there. By the time of the start of World War II, the Jewish community in Thessalonica uh, was about 50,000 strong. I think Thessalonica was, and I think is, the second largest city in uh, Greece. So it wasn't a huge fraction of the population, but it was a lot of Jews to be in one city. By the end of the war, there were 5,000 who survived. They were deported to Auschwitz, where most of them were killed. And so during the Second World War, when all of the Greek Jews were rounded up and taken to concentration camps, the, the Sonder commandos in particular were often Greek Jews. Can you tell us what the Sonder commandos were and why the Greek Jews in particular often got given that job? The uh, Sonder commandos were in general Jewish prisoners in the camps who were recruited to help herd the Jews into gas chambers. And the Germans were very methodical and very clever. And they didn't want a bunch of people rioting. 
So they discovered that if they had one of their own kind of telling them, you're going into uh, the showers, you're going to be cleaned up, you've had this long train ride, and then you'll uh, go to your lodging and you'll start to work and you'll live happily ever after. So it facilitated a peaceful execution process, basically. The Sonder Commando then removed the bodies from the, the gas chambers. They removed the gold teeth from the heads. They removed any other valuables that were uh, on their persons. And uh, they did this over and over. And typically, after a few months, they themselves were killed. And this position, almost all of them did not survive because they were killed off systematically because they were the only ones who actually understood exactly what was going on in the uh, gassing and cremation process. And so they would live for a few months. They lived a little better than the other prisoners. But many survivors of the camps resented the fact that they agreed to do this, never mind that they really had no choice. I mean, you know, the offer was, do you want to be a Sonder Commando or do you want me to shoot you right now? Mm. And so, nevertheless, in some quarters, uh, even to this day, it was controversial. They were considered collaborators. And we could argue about that, I suppose. But the fact is that the, the main character in this play was a Sonder Commando and had that position. The reason that the Greeks were desirable is that they couldn't communicate with what was mostly Eastern European Jews. So they couldn't tell them anything, uh, you know, that would upset them because their languages were so different. I'm sure there were English speakers on all sides, but it, it minimized that. So I'm not, uh, I don't want to exaggerate that all of the Sonder Commando were from Greece, but because it was in 43 when they started bringing in the, the Greek Jews that they did employ them in this capacity. So the, the main character, there is only one character in the story you play on stage, and that is the survivor, Albert Salvado, who lost his wife and children in the concentration camp. Would you read a little bit of the script for us, maybe, and uh, set the scene for this part of the monologue? Albert became friendly with a guy named Daniel, Danieliko, in the camp. Danieliko was Polish, and... Danieliko is the reason that Albert survived. Albert uh, had lost his wife and daughters. He was ready to die. He had lost his will to live, and Danieliko convinced him that it was important they stay alive so they could tell the story of what went on in the camps should they survive, which they both did. So after many years of living in Israel, they both wound up going to Israel. Danieliko had a family. Albert lived alone with his thoughts uh, for 60 years. And finally, the Israelis uh, at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial, decided to honor the Thessalonican Jews, which they had resisted doing for reasons I don't really understand. And Danielico was chosen to light a torch and give a, a talk at the ceremony. So... Albert is reflecting on his uh, experiences with Daniel and uh, during the war, and he's recounting when he first met Danielico, and that's what this uh, little piece is. 
The very first moment he saw me there in the commando, he didn't believe I was a Jew. With my own ears, I heard him say to his friend, Is there a Yid? Which means, are we really Jews? I understood him, and I answered in the Spanish of Cervantes, Si, senor, somos Jirios. And he asked, What, they also bring Sephardic Jews to the ovens? No, I told him. We Sephardim came here as volunteers. Oh, did he laugh. That got me so mad I beat the hell out of him. Me, Albert. That's how we became such good friends. Yeah, yeah, even though he was Polish, I slowly made him into a Seleniki de los Muestros, one of us. He was my lucky charm. All through the concentration camp we were together. We worked at the ovens 12 hours a day, never partying. At night, we'd warm up next to each other. Whenever he could, he'd help me. I remember one day he stole from the Araba de los Comidas, the food wagon, a little cabbage and some potatoes. Oh, what a party we two of us had. I'd take a bite, then he'd take a bite, just like a lollipop. We secretly ate all those potatoes and finally went to sleep with a full stomach. He'd always tell me, Live, Alberto, live. We have to stay alive so there'll be someone left to recount what went on here. And he was right, just like a prophet. So tomorrow he has a Zahua, a great honor, to light the torch at Yad Vashem, and I'll be there right next to him. Wow. It's a... It's a very compelling story. Now, I know as part of this production, you have also have live music. The play is around an hour in length and you have some live music. Tell us a little bit about the music and then we'll play a, a clip of one of the short pieces of music that you feature. Yes, this is a real feature of our uh, production. We have two violinists, two world-class violinists, Professor Julie Rosenfeld from the University of Missouri Department of Music and uh, Lydia Redding. And they were longtime members of the Colorado String Quartet. They played for 30 years. And so they're opening up the, uh, they play at the beginning of the show. They're playing the theme from Schindler's List. I don't think I'm giving anything away by telling you this. It's a gorgeous piece that you may be familiar with. Then the script calls for them to play a Greek folk song. And then there are five scenes in the play. At the end of each scene, they are playing a short piece of Ladino-inspired music that is uh, for solo violin. It's very mournful. It was not written for this play, but it sounds like it was written for the play. And what you're going to play, I think, is the piece at the end of scene one. It was based on original Ladino music. A composer named David Ludwig got a hold of it, adapted it, and arranged it in the form that you're listening to. And you're listening not to uh, Julie Rosenfeld playing it, but uh, from the album that David Ludwig recorded. And then at the end of the play, after scene five, 
there is a piece of, of music by Bartok, a violin music. It adds tremendously to the uh, emotional power of the play, and we're very proud that it's a part of the production. Let me also say at this point that the lighting was designed by Heather Hatton, and there are three kind of emotional states that Albert's in, and I can talk about them if you like, but she has special lighting for each of them, and it also contributes greatly to the show. Well, let's take a listen to one of those Ladino songs. And that was a song performed by Lara St. John and composed by David Ludwig that will be in this weekend's production of Golgotha. I'm curious whether your opinion of Albert changed from the first reading to now you having internalized his lines. Did you change what you thought of Albert? I would say uh, I came to understand him very deeply. We worked on this a long time (laughs) because of COVID. And it turns out we needed a lot of that time to understand his uh, motivations uh, in his life. And you see, he witnessed uh, the cremation of his wife as a Sandra Commando. He witnessed the loss of his daughters who were instantly taken away when they got off the train. And he never saw them again. And the show is largely about how a survivor deals with his memories for the rest of his life. At this point, after living with Albert for so long, are you ready to have him out of your life and out of your head a little bit? Well, I am. At this point, before a show opens, I'm completely uh, preoccupied with this. I've I've read this thing. I read it every day. uh, I have for months now, almost every day. And it's time to move on. Yeah, it definitely is time to um, to move on. You know, I, I never get tired uh, because we're, we keep learning and interpreting and understanding uh, what he's actually saying. I've been in touch with the playwright a few times because uh, some of it is kind of left a little bit vague. You know, very few. I read recently that maybe a hundred Sandra Commandos survived the war. It was very unusual, and the, the presumption is that they were liberated, you know, very quickly at the end, and so a few managed to uh, escape. 
Well, Golgotha, featuring my guest this morning, Aaron Krawitz, will be performed at Talking Horse Productions tonight and tomorrow night at 7.30pm with a final matinee performance on Sunday at 2. To find out more about the show and to get tickets, go to talkinghorseproductions.org. Aaron, thanks for taking on this huge role and for sharing a little bit about it with us this morning. Thank you for having me, Diana. Always a pleasure. For almost 30 years, the City of Columbia's Office of Cultural Affairs has organised an annual celebration of the arts and commemorated that event with a poster designed by a local artist. The very first poster was designed back in 1992 by the late watercolour artist Keith Crown. And in the intervening 30 years, a host of local artistic luminaries working in a multitude of media have won the contest to design a poster that communicates the vitality and beauty of mid-Missouri and the significance of the arts. This year, with it being our bicentennial year, artists were also charged with submitting an artwork that captured the spirit of Columbia now or in the past 200 years. And although this year's poster was officially unveiled back in June, the accompanying fundraising celebration of the arts event will be on Wednesday, September the 1st. And the coordinator for this year's event, Corey Dunn, is here to talk about the event, this year's poster, and how the event helps the Office of Cultural Affairs better support local arts organizations. Good morning, Corey. Good morning. So before we get to the fundraising evening you have coming up, let's talk a little about the poster component. I think for many people, that's the hallmark of the annual event. So tell us a little bit about this year's poster. Sure. This year's poster is by artist Ken Nichols. He is a local painter who didn't grow up in Columbia, but lived in Columbia briefly as a child and traveled around a ton with his family. And kept finding himself coming back to Columbia, both for college and afterwards. And so he really has made himself a home here and grew to love the area and the region. So this year's poster is entitled, Sometimes It's a Door. It's an oil painting on canvas. And it is an image of the intersection at South Bearfield and Gans Creek, which Ken refers to as the edge of civilization <laughs> here in Columbia. Um, it's a really beautiful piece. We're really happy to have it. And right smack in the middle of the image, there is a nice old wooden door. And so as a representation of the Bicentennial in Columbia, that door really provides an opportunity for us to reflect on what's on the other side of that door, both in our past and in our future. So I think this year you had, am I right, submissions from 13 artists. So talk us through the process of choosing the winning poster each year. So there is a poster selection committee every year, which includes typically the previous year's winning poster artist. This year we included a member of the Como 200 committee, and it includes other local volunteers. It is a volunteer um, group that evaluates all of those pieces and makes a selection. And the artists who apply submit, they can submit certainly the piece that they would like to be considered, but often they are submitting a variety of pieces. And then the piece, the poster itself will be commissioned based on that artist's work and style. So this year's piece was actually similar kind of a recreation of a previous piece that Ken had made that really spoke to him in terms of the bicentennial message that we were shooting for and spoke to the committee as well. 
Okay, so it wasn't completely commissioned. It already existed in a certain form, and then he just adapted it so that it fit. Yeah, he had used that intersection for some pieces before and had had other imagery depicted along with it and had used the door before as well, which is an actual door that he has in his garage. Um, (laughs) So he's used that piece as inspiration too. So it's kind of a combination of a couple of previous pieces that he had made. So I went to your website to look back over all the posters from the past 29 years. And although there were lots that were very, very familiar to me, there were some that I had no recollection of and didn't remember. Are some years posters rarer than others? I would say that some of our posters are less visible than others. In years past, the Celebration of the Arts was actually previously known as the Festival of the Arts. And so those posters, when we were still doing the festival, were used as promotional pieces as well as the commemorative poster. So it's kind of dual serving and they had a little higher visibility in that time than maybe they do have in the last several years. But some of them, I would say, were maybe more popular, not necessarily better received, but like the 2011 poster, which is an image of Booches, is one of our best-selling ones. It's such an iconic image for this town. Um, so that one, I, I know a lot of people have seen the um, 2015 tribute to Blind Boone that uh, David Spears did. That one has a lot of visibility as well, certainly, especially now that he's got the new mural right. of a similar image there. So some are certainly more visible than others, but we do sell prints of previous posters as well. So they're, most of them are still available. There are a couple of early ones that we are totally sold out of and no longer have the original image of, I believe. Collector's items. Yeah, exactly. So in past years, the poster has always been unveiled at the Celebration of the Arts event. How come you did a separate unveiling this year? This year it was part of the Bicentennial experience. So we unveiled early so that the poster would be available at the time of all of the Bicentennial celebrations on the 4th of July, knowing that our event wasn't going to be until late September or late August, early September is typically when the event is. So that's the reason for unveiling early this year. It wasn't anything else. It was really just as part of the bicentennial celebration. So you have your big event coming up on September the 1st. Tell us a little bit more about what happens at the event. So the Celebration of the Arts has gone, or fundraising event has gone through several iterations in the course of the last 30 years. It started out as the Festival of the Arts, as I mentioned earlier, which was a big downtown celebration, um, kind of a block party, which I grew up going to as a as a local for many years with my family. And then it transitioned into a private fundraising event that was held in private homes each year. So only f- since 2015, I believe, has it been a public event and in a public setting that we've been selling tickets to. So this year's event is a little different even than our previous ones. It is going to be outside at the MU Healthcare Pavilion at Clary Shy Park, as most people know it, the Farmer's Market Pavilion, right next to the Ark. And it's on September 1st from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. It is a fundraising event for the Columbia Arts Fund, which is a component fund of the Community Foundation of Central Missouri. The Columbia Arts Fund is an endowment that the city set up 
many, many years ago, 2012, I believe is when it was. And the intent of the fund was to create a sustainable funding source that augments the current funding from the city. So the Office of Cultural Affairs annually offers funding to nonprofit arts organizations around town. And so it is written into the city budget to provide that funding. And this Columbia Arts Fund just supplements that. So the Celebration of the Arts is the primary fundraising instrument for the Columbia Arts Fund. And in fiscal year 2017, we were able to start making distributions from that fund to go along with our general funding. So it's only been serving for a couple of years. It's been in existence since 2012, but it had a minimum number before we could start making distributions. So the fund's value right now is just over $383,000. And it's all about sustainability and about perpetuity of funding and support for the arts. We are definitely fortunate to live in a city where our city government financially supports the arts. I'll be at a pretty small level when compared to the number of people the industry employs just here in Colombia and the creative output by our local arts agencies. But the money provided from the general fund, from the city's general fund for the arts support has you know, really barely moved in the 15 years that I've been here, yet the number of agencies applying for funding has gone up, which is why the Columbia Arts Fund is helpful to keep on pushing that budget up a little bit higher. But I'm curious, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but with the past year's impact on sales tax revenue, do we know whether you're going to have to dig deeper into the Arts Fund next year? Is Arts funding going to stay the same in the city budget? What do we know? As of right now, the funding for next year is remaining flat. So it's not dropping at all, but the budget hasn't been approved yet, I don't believe. So um, we're moving into that here in the next couple of weeks, I do believe. But yeah, the current proposal for the budget is to retain the same amount of funding. Okay. I love in this year's poster, I love that idea of the edge of civilization because I feel like that's dramatically moved so much in the time that I've been here in the last 15 years. You know, even I wander around and say, oh, I remember when that was all fields and now it's housing estates that pop up everywhere. And I'm curious whether you as the Office of Cultural Affairs have a way of measuring your capacity for engaging more of these, this growing number of citizens, because I don't see a big influx into arts events. How do we reach this increasing citizenship of our city and engage them in the arts? And do you have a way to measure that? It's not something that we have explored much in terms of the measurement component. We are certainly talking all the time about how do we engage the community, Mm. both with our office and the programming that we offer, because we do a lot of arts programming throughout town, but also with our other arts agencies, which is part of what this year's event highlights in a different way than in years past. We have invited this year our funded agencies to either or host a booth, an informational booth at the event, or perform as well. So we've got performances from Missouri Symphony and from Columbia Entertainment Company and a couple of other folks. So theater, music, all kinds of different options on stage during the event, but we'll also have some booths open with information about these organizations so that hopefully they can 
kind of gather some new gather some new people and build some visibility. We're hoping that our attendees will be inspired and learn about an organization that they're maybe not so familiar with, all while supporting the Columbia Arts Fund on top of it. So you also pay tribute to a person who has made significant contributions to the arts through their work with a city-funded nonprofit arts organization. Can you tell us who this is or give us any insights into what they have done for the arts in Columbia, or is that a huge secret? It's a huge secret. We're going <laughs> to, Mr. Mayor is going to come and unveil that and announce the winner for us during the event. But we have only been awarding that recognition for, I think 2014 was the first year that we did that one. So it's relatively new still. And we've had some really amazing past winners, including, I know, Chris Teeter, who did the doors at or Street Studios has won that in the past. Dr. Ann Mayer won just in 2019 was our last last celebration. Anyway, we've had some really incredible winners. This year is no different. So we do know who our winner is right now, but we are holding on to that one until the until the day of the event. Okay, well, the annual celebration of the arts event will take place on Wednesday, September the 1st at the MU Healthcare Pavilion at Clary Shy Park. You can find out more about the event and find tickets at comoarts.com and click on the celebration of the arts window in the top right hand corner of the web page. Corey Dunn, thank you so much for filling us in on the event and for taking time to chat today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I am a huge fan of bad 1950s sci-fi films. Creature from the Black Lagoon, It Came from Outer Space, The Quatermass Experiment. There is something so endearing about them, so enticingly awful. Terrible scripts, hammy actors, adorable ideas about technology, and of course, men in monster suits. One of the classics of the genre is Plan 9 from Outer Space. Originally called Grave Robbers from Outer Space, it went into general release in 1959 and even included footage of Bella Lagoon. Gosi, although he had already died before shooting of the movie began, which meant director Ed Wood had to slide in some footage he'd shot of Lugosi for another movie. It was once dubbed the worst film ever made, but Plan 9 from Outer Space has now reached the echelons of being so bad it's good and has a cult following. And it was the inspiration for a trio of local actors, playwrights and musicians who, with a love for bad sci-fi in their hearts, created Plan 9, the musical from outer space. I gave the musical its world premiere at Maplewood Barn back in 2008. And now it is back with the 2021 version being directed by Christopher Gould, who is here to let us peek behind the stage curtain. Good morning, Christopher. Good morning, Diana. I love that not only does this film exist as a musical, but that it was written right here in Columbia. So what can you tell us about the origins of this musical? Well, I was not present for the creation of this musical. I actually did see it when it was first produced by the Maplewood Barn in 2008. However, um, two of the three authors are dear friends of mine. Chris Bowling and Meg Phillips Crespi are both local members of the theater community as well as Jay West. I can't really speak as to the origins of the play, but I do know that they are huge fans of bad science fiction, just <laughs> as you are, just just as I am as well. And there was much love for this awful, awful Ed Wood film, Plan 9 from Outer Space. And so they went ahead and, and created a musical as a tribute. I remember seeing it as well back in, in 2008. And I went to the play with pretty low expectations and came away absolutely blown away by it. So I'm a little surprised that it has taken 13 years to get it back on the stage again. Do you have a sense of what its history has been since its world premiere 13 years ago? 
Well, I don't believe it was ever published. And ah. so I think that is why it has sort of lingered and, and <laughs> languished in relative obscurity. I do know that um, Maplewood Barn this year decided to do a Missouri-themed season because of the Bicentennial. And uh, the play selection committee at the time was aware of Plan 9, the musical from Outer Space. And because it was locally written, it was floated as an idea to include in this year's season. And, of course, they decided to do it. So somewhat like um, somewhat like the citizens in Plan 9, the, the <laughs> production itself is now back from the dead. What made you want to direct it rather than being in it? Oh, my goodness. That's a very good question. Okay. Well, as I said, Chris and Meg are both friends of mine. And so I appreciate the work that they have done for the community and, you know, their directorial work, their acting work, and with this musical, their writing work. Really, I jumped at the chance because this is exactly the kind of thing that I love as well. Now, I'm more of a horror genre than a science fiction genre, but I love old, bad, black and white movies. And this uh, this musical is just so silly that it just seemed like the perfect chance for me to to sort of get my toes wet on musical direction, because, of course, this is also my debut musical direction. Ah, okay. So how, what are the challenges in directing a musical over directing a play, of, of which, of course, you have directed very many in your theatrical career? What were the unanticipated challenges maybe you've encountered? Well, what I found out is that directing a musical is entirely different from directing a play. Um, directing a musical is largely about managing all the various sub areas of the production. So, you know, you have your choral work, you have your dance work, choreography, you have musicians that you don't normally have in a play. You've got all these various, I, I, I like to liken directing to those old uh, gong show acts where you would have somebody spinning a bunch of plates in the, in, on sticks <laughs> in the air. And, and directing a play is a bit like spinning four or five or six plates in the air. And directing a musical is something like 14 or 15. Um, the big unexpected challenge was that it's directing a musical is more of a management task than it is necessarily a creative task. Well, every director likes to make a production their own. So tell me about your vision for your production of Plan 9, the musical from Outer Space. It's funny because my vision of Plan 9 started all the way back before the beginning of the summer. As you and your your listeners may know, I also directed the production of 5th of July, which was a barn production earlier in the summer. And I had a vision for one set that could take care of both productions. And that's really kind of what I brought to it, is that I have a single set that folds in upon itself. Now, I did have to make some modifications. For 5th of July, it's much more true to the original vision. In Act 1, you had a set that was an interior, and then for Act 2, it was an exterior, and the set actually folded in on itself to become the exterior. The original idea for Plan 9 is that it would be something like that, except all the way over on stage right and all the way over on stage left. I have had to modify that a little bit so that it's only hinged on one side so that you get to see both the interior and the exterior of the UFO. Okay, so your vision is really about the, um, the stage set, yeah. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the, the beauty of the production is that, I mean, it is a fantastic script. 
one doesn't need to make much deviation from the script in order to make it really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say that um, Chris and Meg did provide some rewrites to the script. There was some humor in the original that was, um, shall we say, of a kind of humor that has really fallen out of favor. Okay. There's one character, Glenda, who is uh, is a woman who is played by a man as sort of a, as a nod to um, another one of Ed Wood's films, Glenn or Glenda, about transvestitism. And so the original production had a lot of, oh, look, that's a man in a dress kind of humor. And that kind of humor has, now that we are a little more enlightened about gender, that kind of humor has fallen out of favor. And so Chris and Meg rewrote certain sections of the play to take that kind of humor out. Glenda is more of a, shall we say, a straight character. Glenda is funny in and of herself, but she's not funny because she's a man in a dress. Well, tell me a little bit about the music. It is a musical, obviously. So I remember loving the music and we will listen to a little clip in a minute. But tell me a little bit about it from your point of view as the director. It is a rock and roll musical. Absolutely. This is this is not a violins and saxophones kind of musical, although I will say it's funny. We do have a saxophone. We have a saxophone who is playing the bass line rather than a bass guitar, which really makes for an interesting rock combo. But it is definitely a rock and roll musical. One might even call it a punk rock musical in the style, say, of the Buzzcocks or um, some of the older, you know, some of the more musical punk bands. It's a very fast paced music. It's very enjoyable, very good time. Well, let's play a clip of the opening number from the official original cast soundtrack from 2008. the opening number from Plan 9, the musical from Outer Space. Now, the film uh, is, a, the musical is based on the screenplay by Edwards, and I think it has pretty much the same characters. But for reasons of comedy and music, the storyline diverges a little. Give us a quick synopsis of the musical version. Sure thing. You have aliens invading the Earth. You have three aliens, Eros, Tana, and then their commander, alien commander, and they go through various plans in an attempt to conquer the Earth. On the Earthling side, you have Paula and Jeff. They are our romantic leads. Jeff is an airplane pilot who happens to witness several of the flying saucer attacks. Paula is his sweetheart at home. And uh, Paula and, and, and Jeff, along with their friends and various citizens, do what they can to defend the planet against the invasion of the insidious aliens. It's pretty straightforward. 
<laughs> With the plan nine of the movie and of its musical counterpart, it's a, it's a plan to terrify the earthlings into submission by raising an army of the dead or more precisely, a trio of the dead. But the movie version fails to tell us what plans one through eight are, an omission which the musical hilariously corrects. Would it be giving too much away to talk us through the first eight plans? Well, I wouldn't want to talk through the first eight plans. That would spoil (laughs) some of the surprise. Um, I can definitely talk about a couple of the plans which are touched upon in the musical. My favorite is, and I don't remember which plan it is, but um, self-replicating garden gnomes. (laughs) I think that's plan six. Plan six, self-replicating garden gnomes, is absolutely mentioned. And you will see some of these self-replicating garden gnomes on stage. And if you're if you watch closely, you might actually see them replicate. I love that. Uh, not to give too much away, but the, the previous plan is uh, basically television, which elicits the response from the aliens. The Earthlings may be stupid, but they would never fall for that. <laughs> the the wonderful irony of that is that you know, of course, our interpersonal communications devices are even more advanced <laughs> and more, if you like, insidious than they were in two thousand eight. And so, you know, every person is carrying one of these devices around them pretty much at all times. One wonders whether the aliens actually followed that plan and succeeded. Of course, the beauty of Maplewood Barn is that it is all outside, so we can be socially distanced and outdoors. Are there any specific COVID-safe policies that people should know about before coming? We are not doing anything specific as far as socially distancing. The beauty of, as you said, the beauty of the barn itself is that it is socially distanced. The audience is away from the actors and, and can be away from each other. I know last year when we did the um, the Shakespeare Love's Labor's Lost, it was at the very beginning of the pandemic and people were very, very cautious We had um, areas of the lawn that were spray painted to keep people away from each other. We're not doing that this time, but people can sit as close or as far apart as they wish. The audience does not need to be masked, but we do recommend that you wear the mask whenever you're around other people. I did watch the movie this week so I could be better acquainted with the musical. Have Have you watched the movie? I have. It is fantastic. It's fun. It's a it's a great deal of fun. Yes, and if people want to watch it, it is available on YouTube. I think you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. Maplewood Barnes' production of Plan 9, the musical from Outer Space, directed by my guest Christopher Gould, plays tonight, Saturday and Sunday this weekend, Thursday through Sunday next weekend, and Labor Day weekend, September 2nd through the 5th. You can find out more about the play and get tickets at maplewoodbarn.com. Christopher Gould, always a delight to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Diana, for having me on. that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today, 
Greenhouse Theatre Project actors Elizabeth Broughton-Palmieri and Richard Harris, actor Aaron Krawitz, Office of Cultural Affairs Programme Specialist Corey Dunn, and director Christopher Gould. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, mid-Missouri. Mm-hmm.